Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week was quite the roller coaster for Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Beginning with news that one of his top deputies had been arrested in Paris in connection with the butchering of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018 at the Saudi consulate in Turkey. A Saudi man suspected of involvement in the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi is arrested in Paris. He was detained at Charles de Gaulle airport after his name appeared to match a man wanted in the killing. Later that day, the U.S. Senate took up a resolution aimed at blocking a $650 million arms sale to Saudi Arabia to put pressure on them to end the war in Yemen. We could stop this war if we rarely had the will to do it. All America should be appalled at the humanitarian disaster caused by the Saudi blockade of Yemen. The vote failed 67 to 30. By the next day, the suspect had also been released, with French police saying that the man, Khaled Al-Otaibi, had conclusively demonstrated it was a case of mistaken identity. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Move along. Move along. There are indeed an endless number of Khalids in Saudi Arabia and even more Alotaibis, so the story is plausible. Regardless, the arrest in Paris showed that there was at least a tiny bit of willingness to confront NBS, and the vote in the Senate showed roughly the same thing. But while the number of symbolic victories is mounting, so is the death toll in Yemen. In 2018, after Khashoggi was murdered, Congress passed a war powers resolution calling for an end to the war. But the war went on, and the weapons continued to flow. In the 2020 campaign, Biden went so far as to call MBS a pariah. I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. In his first foreign policy speech, he promised to end U.S. support for, quote, offensive operations. Of course, one man's offense is another man's defense. Senator Chris Murphy, a leading critic of the Saudis and a champion of the previous war powers resolution, put it this way to my colleague Austin Allman. I see this as a classic defensive arms sale. Um, I have, you know, I've led the, the fight to end offensive weapons sales to the Saudis, but this is a true defensive weapons sale. And, and with the increased pace of Houthi drones coming into Saudi territory, it is actually important for them to have the ability to shoot them down. Tom Malinowski, who moved from Human Rights Watch into Congress, has also been an outspoken critic, but he also expressed support for the sale. Here's what he told my colleague Sarah Sirota. I'm not in favor of blocking weapons that are primarily intended for defense, missile defense, air defense, weapons that would be useful to Saudi Arabia in case of an attack from either the Houthis or Iran or anybody else. I spoke with Lindsey Graham this week and got perhaps the most clear-eyed realpolitik rationale for overlooking MBS's brutality. Here's Graham, and if I sound muffled, it's because I was wearing the mask still required in the Capitol during the interview. What is the way to end the Yemen conflict in your mind without... Uh, well, I'm more worried about 
how it ends than when it ends. I don't want to end the Yemen conflict giving Iran a foothold in Yemen, turn the place over to the Houthis who are aligned with the Iranians. It matters how it ends. The goal is not just to end the conflict. The goal is to end it in a way that America's national security is enhanced, that the people of Yemen don't live under the yoke of the Iranians. Sarah Sirota previously covered the Air Force for the Washington Trade publication Inside Defense and is now a congressional reporter for The Intercept. She's been covering the fight over the Yemen war and this arms sale in particular. We'll also be joined in a moment by Ken Klippenstein, another Intercept colleague, who recently covered Mohammed bin Salman's deliberate strategy of driving up gas prices to get leverage over Biden and U.S. foreign policy. The context of MBS's relationship with Trump here is also important. MBS gambled big on that relationship, and it's no secret he'd love to see him return to power, along with his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who is reportedly on the cusp of getting a very large infusion of Saudi cash into his new investment firm, Affinity Partners. We'll talk about all that with Ken later, but first, Sarah, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So tell us about these weapons. You've spent a bunch of time in the defense industry, press, like covering weapon systems and sales. You know, first of all, what was in this package? Yeah, so this was $650 million worth of uh, advanced medium-range air-to-air missiles built by Raytheon. They're intended to target aerial weapons, so they're different from air-to-ground missiles that would, you know, target ground supplies or or civilians or infrastructure. So they're trying to shoot down other planes and drones? Correct. How often is that going to happen? So who, obviously the Houthis don't have much of an air force, but there is a lot of talk about drone strikes in Saudi Arabia or attempts by cross-border attacks. Yeah. So what is going on between like around the border region? And are they actually getting hit by an occasional drone attack? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we we had a, a pretty devastating scenario of who the backed attacks targeting Saudi oil facilities a few years ago that created major disruptions in the global economy. But in terms of the argument that these attacks pose a major risk to civilians, Americans and Saudi civilians, and therefore these $650 million worth of AMRAAM missiles are justified given the Saudi offensive on Yemen has been brought into question. And and it feels like they successfully have trapped opponents of the conflict into this kind of linguistic conversation about offensive weapons and defensive weapons, because now you're sitting there and, you know, the opponents of it are tr- are trying to make the case in a, in a roundabout way that they can be used offensively in order to enforce this blockade, which is, mm-hmm. an, which is an act of war. Uh, and then the defenders of the sale will say, well, that's a roundabout explanation. These are actually defensive. Instead of people being able to step back and say, no, we're against this war. We don't want weapons being sold, period. Chris Murphy earlier this year said he was going to oppose all weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, he's he's shifted his tune a little bit. And the White House came out after Biden was elected. He said, we're going to end offensive operations. Still at that point, Murphy was saying we're going to end all sales. So what's the State Department position? And it it seems like Murphy and and the State Department are pretty well lined up here. Yeah, I mean... I think that inside the State Department, there is an establishment way of thinking that is a little bit sympathetic towards the Saudis. We had the State Department pushing a ceasefire. 
that many experts said was was not fair and was biased towards the Saudi side. And we've seen Chris Murphy and, and the State Department continue to push this line. State Department is pushing for what? The State Department was pushing for a ceasefire that many experts, you know, across the spectrum have said is one-sided in favor of the Saudis. In favor of the Saudis. And so Chris Murphy has sort of towed that line of pushing for the ceasefire. Meanwhile, that was going on around a similar time that Elizabeth Warren put out a letter calling on the Biden administration to pressure the Saudis to end their blockade, which Chris Murphy notably did not sign on to, although several of his colleagues did. So just further evidence of him working alongside the State Department to push their narrative and not really continuing his approach that he's had in the past. Part of this debate, you talked to Tom Malinowski, and he mentioned that he was supportive of this weapons sale. Right. He said it was purely defensive and, and he didn't want to completely break off the relationship with Saudi Arabia and he was in favor of continuing with this sale. But then he talked about a way to ground Saudi warplanes. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit? What What is up with Saudi Arabia that they can't fix their own planes without us. Yes, yeah, so their their warplanes are are dependent on US contractors continuing to maintain them. So without those maintenance contracts, Air Force effectively would be grounded and that could help to facilitate the end of the conflict. So when President Biden announced an end to offensive support for the Saudi war, there was sort of this loophole that existed whereby the U.S. would continue allowing contractors to maintain their warplanes that are used offensively. So Representative Ro Khanna in the House and Senator Bernie Sanders in the Senate introduced amendments to this year's NDAA that would have prevented U.S. contractors from doing those those maintenance and, and logistical supports for Saudi warplanes. So when Congressman Malinowski talked about ending maintenance support for the Saudis, that was sort of what he was referring mm-hmm. to. And, and Rand Paul, when he gave a speech last night calling on his colleagues to support the resolution to uh, ban this this sale also made extensive mention of the continued maintenance and logistical support that the U.S. supplies for the Saudis. How, and how does the U.S. Ex- explain away the idea that it's not going to support offensive operations, but it's going to help fix up these planes so that they can offensively go into Yemen and bomb them? Is it just like a gun store that says, look, you know, what you do with this weapon once you walk out the door you know, I, I hope you behave responsibly, but it's not my responsibility. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a loophole that exists that I think many people say the White House was hoping people wouldn't notice. I mean, that was something that Congressman Malinowski, who himself is a former State Department official, outrightly said that he thinks that members of the White House perhaps hoped that people in Congress wouldn't have noticed this loophole. But it has been brought out in the open. Some of the people involved in this fight earlier this year had said, this NDAA route is a dead end, that mm-hmm. what ought to be done is a war powers resolution that just ties the hands of the, the Biden administration, and that if you go the route of the NDAA, that's the authorization bill that gets voted on every year, and it's an opportunity for everybody to fight over different policies, military and otherwise, if you go through that route, you might be able to get something good through the House, but then once it gets to the Senate, it'll get watered down, and once it gets into conference, it'll get... It'll get basically stripped of of all meaning. So don't don't go don't waste all your time and energy doing this. They ended up doing that anyway, and that does seem 
I mean, was their prediction of how this would unfold about correct? Sure. You, you know, I, I mean, I think some would argue that it wasn't necessarily likely that the NDAA route would work out, but I think it's it was necessary to prove that they were exhausting all options on the table before taking the more drastic measure of moving on to invoking the War Powers Resolution. And so they wound up getting what, 29 Democrats, or at least the majority of the caucus, if it wasn't, was it, were there any Republicans It was 28 Democrats um, and, and two Republicans, Mike Lee and Rand Paul, who right. were original sponsors of the resolution. But 28 Democrats marks the majority of Democrats. So in many ways, this was a win for activists that are trying to end the war. You had the majority of Democrats coming out opposed to this arms sale that is, you know, intended to block um, Houthi attacks into Saudi Arabia. It's not precision-guided missiles that are, are targeting infrastructure on the ground in Yemen. And yet just this overwhelming show of force from the majority of Democrats saying we should not be doing this. Also, right. just to illustrate the the stark contrast between Chris Murphy in the past and Chris Murphy now that right. he's digressing from where most Democrats stand on this. So I think between that show of force and between the compromise NDAA that the House passed last night, not including the language that would end U.S. support for the maintenance of Saudi warplanes, I think we are looking, well, what, what are the next steps? And a war powers resolution seems like the path. What's the next step for the weapons? Can, are they guaranteed to ship or is the Biden administration going to use them for some sort of leverage? Is he going to try to get gas prices down? I think if there was leverage to be had, that would have been before the White House approved of this sale. It, it approved the State Department approved of this sale, and then they had 30, so it's out the door now. And then like Congress had thirty days to mm -hmm. issue a resolution. That's the power that Congress has to stop the sale. This resolution failed, and so the the sale is set to go forward. So, from the perspective of people in Washington who were fighting this sale, how did this turn out? In the conversations that I've had with people who are advocating to end the war, the big point that they're trying to get across is that this vote last night, yes, while it was, I mean, a disappointing departure for Chris Murphy from his past stance, many didn't even think that we would get this vote on the arms sale. The majority of arms sales just float by. Congress mm -hmm. doesn't bother to introduce a resolution to try to stop it. Um, and so the fact that that we had Rand Paul coming in first, and, and then he got Bernie on board and a few others to introduce this and force the vote on this weapon was hugely significant. And then to have 28 Democrats vote in favor of the resolution was a significant win in the eyes of activists that are trying to end this war. I think that's it's an interesting point in the sense that activists in some ways undermine their own win by earlier arguing, no, actually, this is an offensive sale. Like, this can be used offensively, so therefore it falls under this rubric, and therefore it, it ought to be blocked. When in reality, it is, mostly a, it is a mostly defensive product that's aimed at, like, shooting drones out of the sky before they you know, blow up a building or blow up oil fields. And so... To get 28 Democrats on record saying, no, even these weapons, even a, mm -hmm. even a generally defensive weapon is something that we don't want sold to the kingdom right now while these atrocities in, in Yemen are ongoing is a huge win. But it's harder to celebrate that win because they previously claimed that these were offensive weapons. So it's sort of like they're getting caught up in their own, you know, 
it, it, it'd be one thing to be able to say, right. wow, it's a big deal that a majority of Democrats blocked a weapons sale that is you know, fundamentally defensive mm -hmm. in nature, but then you have to concede that you're kind of playing games. A little bit. Right, but which is which again goes back to the, the technocratic trap that you know advocates of the war have drawn opponents into, because they're all wrapped up in this language over whether or not this bomb is for defensive or offensive purposes, and we just breeze past the fact that we're talking about a war. Right, a war that has created massive devastation in Yemen, which the UN has labeled to the worst humanitarian crisis. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That was Sarah Sirota. Ken Klippenstein is an investigative reporter for The Intercept. Ken, welcome to Deconstructed. Good to be with you. And so tell me a little bit about Saudi Arabia's role in OPEC and OPEC's role in gas prices around the world and the role of gas prices around the world in prices of everything else. So there are obviously a bunch of different members, but Saudi um, has the lion's share of the uh, global oil supply with uh, Russia coming in close behind it. And so uh, between the two of them, they sort of establish what is the kind of set price for what oil is going to be. And that has downstream effects for everything, not just the pump that you go to, you know, fill your gas in your car, but the products that you buy. You know, not only are they shipped overseas using oil in large tankers and also um, shipped over interstate highways and trucks, but even just the manufacturing and production of them, oil factors into all of that. And so via the strategic control of the uh, supply of oil, they're able to affect the prices. And what um, oil experts like to um, talk about a lot is how they're able to keep those prices within a certain range. It can be detrimental if it falls below a certain number and it falls above a certain number. So um, why, why explain why that, what's wrong with it going too high for them? Saudi might make a lot of money and it's not necessarily bad for them. But in a case like that, then um, all those downstream effects I was talking about a minute ago, things that were profitable for a business to ship and sell, perhaps operating on you know modest margins, becomes not profitable anymore. And so you, then you start to have these supply chain problems like what we're seeing. They you know stop producing certain things because it's not worth it to them anymore. And just in general, commerce depends on a sort of stability. And, and you know when there's too much volatility, that just uh, has the effect of, of of you know really really putting a shock in sort of market systems yeah and how much do you think it has to do with the fear of pivoting away from fossil fuels if you if you remember back in you know 2008 when 
gas prices last spiked up over four over four dollars all of a sudden people were not so enthusiastic about hummers and other gas guzzlers and you started seeing you know hybrids really start to take off and you start to see people trying to figure out ways to get around oil is this is some of it strategic like we we want to milk this as long as we possibly can and not encourage people to move away from it I believe so. Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, a lot of the progress that's been made in alternative energies, uh, like solar power, a lot of the R&D that's gone into it, a lot of the progress has been because it's suddenly profitable and it's saleable on a consumer level, you know, as opposed to the sorts of things that maybe the defense department is able mm -hmm. to do and operate at a loss. If you have a huge consumer market for something, suddenly it becomes feasible to, to pursue things in ways that you hadn't before. Right. And that's right. That's a key point because once the kilowatt price or the price per barrel of fossil fuel energy hits a certain point, then it becomes profitable to move to something, move to say wind, if it's a little bit, if it's a tiny bit cheaper. So you're right. So they, yeah, they have they have to keep it, you know, within within a range there. Now the the former guy, President Donald Trump, you know, had a real knack for identifying the levers that could move the economy and finding ways to browbeat them to his will. And the, the, he famously went after the Federal Reserve relentlessly, and I think appropriately. Like I think, you know, from the perspective of driving the economy toward full employment, he, you know, he pushed the Fed not to raise interest rates, to to push unemployment lower and below what a lot of economists thought was possible. And as a result, wages they'd go up. So in that in that sense, I think he was actually right to step outside the norms of what presidents had done before and and really go after the Federal Reserve chairman and the Federal Reserve, he did the same thing to Saudi Arabia. You know, he would badger Mohammed bin Salman on Twitter saying, hey, pump more oil, get, get my gas prices down because you know, as a politician, he felt like the two things that would hurt him the most would be a slow, slowing economy, and rising gas prices, and, and those two things can be, be linked. And so what, what do we know about his success in getting MBS to pump more and get prices down? He had an extraordinary success. And what's interesting about it is the time that it happened. On two different occasions, he requested that Mohammed bin Salman change the production quotas in either direction, actually, uh, in, in, uh, to produce less during the pandemic to protect the sort of fledgling domestic oil shale production here in the U.S., and then to increase production in 2018, just in, in both cases, just prior to the elections. Elections in 2018, obviously, being the midterm elections, and then 2020 being the presidential elections. And I remember... At the time, you know, there was a lot of sort of hand-wringing about, you know, how ridiculous this is and how he's behaving like a Timbot dictator. But I think in a sense, he was rational about it because there's a wealth of political science research to suggest that gas prices, oil prices um, have a, you know, major effect on political outcomes uh, with respect to elections in the United States. There's clearly, you know, historical evidence for that. But what's interesting about how he went about doing it was that in 2020, he really ratcheted things up. I mean, he had sort of you know, wheedled MBS to do it in 2018. MBS complied. Then in 2020, when in the context of a pandemic that was hurting everyone, including the Saudi government, which by the way, you know, is running a very high deficit. They have all sorts of internal problems. And so they very much had a national incentive to drive up production in order just to make more money. And they ended up listening to Trump because Trump threatened to withdraw the military presence from Saudi, which was unprecedented in the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. The way in the past that they have registered displeasure with the um, kingdom has been uh, kind of like what we're doing now, having a debate about, are we going to, you know, suspend a certain weapon shipment, you know, kind of around the margins? Are we going to, you know... We're going to say mean things on the floor of Congress. Or... <laughs> exactly. And right. Trump really went for the uh, centerpiece of the entire relationship because they don't have 
their own military in any conventional sense of it. I mean, they mm -hmm. depend on us, not just for the military presence there, but also we have engineers running things, uh, you know, also, I mean, you know, it's a country that's had to try to develop very recently. And so they don't have a lot of the trappings of a developed society. And so they rely on, they basically use that oil money to farm out that sort of work. And so that gives us enormous leverage that you saw him exercise in that I think people in Washington are loath to admit exists. I think that there's this tendency to say, oh, what can we do? It's another country. We can't, you know, we don't have any influence. And so based on your reporting, based on sources that you've been able to, to develop and talk to about MBS's thinking about gas prices vis-a-vis -vis his relationship with the Biden administration, what is, what is driving MBS now? My understanding is that there's a conflict going on in the National Security Council right now about how to handle this, and that there's actually a lot of cognizance. This doesn't spill out into the public because they're a very disciplined administration. There are not a lot of leaks. It's been a hard area to report on, frankly. But what I've learned is that the administration, or at least significant you know, parts of it at, at the very highest levels, understands that MBS is thirsty for engagement with the United States, not just for a meeting with President Biden, which to his credit, you know, he has uh, followed through on and not met with the um, crown prince as he vowed to do, perhaps falling short of his promise to make them a quote pariah. But, you know, that is something that's something that uh, previous presidents haven't done. The, the impression I get is that they are very much aware in that this picture that, oh, you know, MBS might just go to the Russians or he might just go to the Chinese is very inaccurate. And, and to say that so glibly, it's very complicated to establish a sort of relationship of the sort that we have with them to, you know, not just stand up a sort of military there in, in Qatar and, and and help them with, I mean, you know, flying sorties, F-16s over Yemen, that's complicated stuff. I mean, this mm -hmm. is, you know, complex equipment. And, and so, you know, they need help using it. So they depend on us in all sorts of ways. The administration knows that, why they're not saying that or capitalizing on that, I don't know. And that is the uh, crux of the debate going on in NSC right now. So MBS, as I gather it, uh, is using oil prices as a kind of lever to try to extract out of the US what he what he wants. Now, he's getting this $650 million arms sale. Do you think that that's related? Totally. I will just tell you what folks in the intelligence space who have a lot of insight into um, how this individual thinks. And, and you know, I've known him for, I've had access to him for years and years. They, they say that this is the exact wrong way that you deal with a figure like this, because it's going to send the message that, you know, maybe there will be some inconveniences if you do something like murder a journalist um, and have him dismembered in the Turkish consulate. Um, you know, maybe there'll be some embarrassing headlines. Maybe the president will wait a while to meet with you. But, you know, on a systemic level, the sort of geostrategic nature of the relationship will remain more or less the same. And I have to say, you know, that comports with common sense when you're dealing with a bully giving them concessions and kind of trying to be nice, it doesn't necessarily work the best. What about his relationship with Trump and his ongoing relationship with Jared Kushner? You know, there's been re recent reporting that the kingdom is gonna make a massive investment into Jared Kushner's kind of investment vehicle, which he's calling Affinity Partners. And this sets up a really unusual situation where you have the crown prince having a much warmer relationship with the former president who may be the future president and having a direct financial relationship with the son-in-law and senior advisor to that former president and potential future president. Is there any concern in the national security apparatus or inside the administration that MBS just wants to undermine Democrats generally and Biden specifically because he knows that politically 
he'll be much better off. You know, geopolitically, he'd be much better off with Trump back in office. 100%. And I think that's where, where we're finally starting to have a more public debate about the pro problematic character of um, our relationship with this country, which has always been embarrassing to elites in Washington. I mean, the human rights record of this country is atrocious. That hasn't changed. You know, MBS has certainly done things that uh, his predecessors might not have done, but the general character of the regime is, you know, not wildly different than it was, except for this partisan character that has drawn the ire of folks, as, as you said, the national security space and politicals too. They're willing to talk about this stuff more. That's why they're telling me some of these things where they would not have in the past. And I've tried to cover this country for years prior to the Biden administration, so I can say that with, with personal knowledge. But that's exactly the sense that they have, that this politicized relationship is going to become something like what the debate about the Russia investigation was at the beginning of the Trump administration. And in this case, we have some very strong evidence. I mean, when you look at him setting up a a fund that the Saudis invest, that is a common mechanism by which they influence Pedal mm -hmm. in Washington. So we're not going out and speculating saying, oh, maybe it's no, that's how they that's how they are able to have the sort of clout that they do on K Street is exactly through um and and you know, uh we have a case of a billionaire who got indicted. How often can you say that that happens? Tom mm -hmm. Barrick, who is head of Colony Capital, and he was a senior advisor to the Trump campaign, indicted for influence peddling on behalf of the UAE, a very close partner of um, Saudi Arabia. When I talked to folks in FBI, they and I said, a billionaire who's connected to the president, like, and he got indicted. That's a huge story. They were all amazed by that. And the sense that I get from them is there's a lot more there that perhaps we don't know about because the hurdles you have to clear. A lot of the rank and file investigators, they want to go after more powerful people, but they're not always able to because there are political realities. Right. Feels like there's some poetry at work here in a sense. Biden has always has, you know, thinks of apparently thinks of himself now as a kind of modern day FDR, like he wants to recreate FDR's presidency. But it but it was FDR who created the deal with Saudi Arabia in the beginning. And so that and that that deal uh, and the petrodollar that flowed from it powered the growth of the U US middle class, powered the growth of the US into the empire. That it that it became, but now that the relationship with Saudi Arabia has turned partisan, uh, it, it seems like it is a deep problem for Democrats if a partisan enemy of theirs has control over gas prices, because that's the that's the thing that's going to cost you every midterm that you'll ever have, as long as gas prices are a thing that continue to drive prices throughout the economy food prices and you know you know everything else. And so what what is the solution for Democrats here beyond just fully moving away from a a fossil fuel economy? Do should Democrats just hand over the store and say slaughter everything in in your path? Or what 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 are you know what what are the kind of progressive foreign policy types saying is a is a realistic and uh, moral approach to this intractable problem. Well, I thought that suspicion of this arms sales, uh, arms sale just now was a sort of measured response to it that I thought was wise. Because I do think that there's a case to be made for that. You don't want to just shift off of the you know linchpin of the entire entire global economic system in short order. I mean, these are things that you have mm -hmm. to. 
you know, deal with cautiously and, and you don't want to sledge, you want to swing a sledgehammer trying to solve these, these very uh, delicate problems. And, and something like that can send a signal to them that, you know, there are going to be consequences. And then you can talk about, you know, something else you can do after that. You can start to ratchet up tension, kind of like with Trump. I mean, you look at the way that he w went about getting his oil concessions in 2018, 2020, his 2020 threats were a lot more direct and, and sort of dramatic than is uh, 2018. I mean, we know how to do this. We do this with the Russians. We do this with the Chinese. You know, you use a carrot and a stick. You can use their incentives that you can use, their disincentives. And it doesn't have to be something where it's going to be some huge global realignment or, or lead to a war or anything like that. MBS is very sensitive. As, as I mentioned before, the NSC and the White House understands, he's very sensitive to what Washington thinks, pays very, I'm told, pays extremely close attention to domestic U.S. politics. So this notion that he doesn't care and he might just, you know, walk away, that's really a bluff. And and from your reporting, has he or the people around him made it clear that there's a link between his oil policy and his whether or not he can get a meeting or a call with Biden? I'll give you an example. Um, just last week, and it's amazing to me this stuff isn't reported more broadly, Mike Pompeo, former CIA director and chief of state department under Trump, traveled to Riyadh and he met with the former head of Saudi Aramco. That's their, um, you know, national oil company. Um, I don't know what they talked about. I'm trying to find out. But talk about something like Saudi Arabia, <laughs> that is like their, you know, that is their chief asset. And I think it's impossible not to have that sort of be in the backdrop of anything that you're talking about. But whether or not they've discussed that directly, certainly NSC appreciates that. And it's just shocking the disjunct between the extent to which it's understood in the White House and then what we see publicly, because it's not discussed that way publicly, you yeah. know whole thing is untoward and it's unseemly and it's hard, I think it's hard to talk about because you're tying together the fate of Democrats in the midterms and the, and the price that we pay at the pump with the fates of the people's lives in, in Yemen and, and elsewhere throughout the, the region. And it's, and it's, it's an, it's an ugly thing to have, even think about. Certainly our role in it. And I don't mean to suggest that the Saudi, I mean, um, you know, you're talking about FDR, you look back at history, we propped up these guys, mm -hmm. you know? And so I don't mean to suggest that the Saudi people or because uh, the citizenry hates their leadership in that country, as is often the case in authoritarian regimes. Um, and so, you know, uh, and I think that's part of what Biden is bumping up against is if we're going to recalibrate that relationship, we're gonna have to change our own behavior too. Well, Ken Klippenstein, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. That was Ken Klippenstein, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.